do it, don't we? So we've got the story of Genesis chapter 20. We are slowly making our way through the story of Abram. Remember, it started with the Tower of Babel and, and uh, humans not having a clue about who God is and God saying, well, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this. I'm going to reveal myself to Abram. Uh, Humanity is trying to make a name for themselves by controlling me. Well, I'm going to come and I'm going to make a name for Abram. And he goes and he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. Uh, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you, uh, I, I, they're going to have to face me. Uh, Abram, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And by the way, I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you descendants. And never mind that your wife's barren, you're going to go. And they go, and they leave, and they enter the land, and Abraham does this amazing journey. God says, leave your family. Abraham says, fantastic, God, I'm taking Lot with me. I hope you don't mind. Goes on. He doesn't actually say, I hope you don't mind. We just, yeah, leave your family, and then we hear Lot went with him. Anyway, he goes, and eventually, um, the first thing he does, almost the first thing he does, is there's a famine in the land, so off he chuffs to Egypt. He says, man, my wife is hot. I'm going to have to do something about this. So let's go to the very capital of, the, of Egypt, where the Egypt, where the Pharaoh's officials are, uh, 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 because I'm really frightened that maybe they're going to see her and say, well, the Pharaoh should marry her, so, so Sarai, my wife, just tell everyone you're my sister. And Sarai, which I suppose is a nice thing that she, she listens to her husband, in fact she's commended for that in the New Testament, but I hope she listened after giving him a slap. In fact, Anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> she goes along with it, and God causes all sorts of things to happen. She's taken in. What sort of a man? Uh, Abram's irritating, and, and God forces him out. Pharaoh chucks him out of Egypt. He's gone back to the land. Then we see, like this. From there, it's just cycles of trusting God, whoa, falling. Trusting God, whoa, falling. Trusting God, whoa, falling. And, and, and if, if you want to... Uh, hear more of details about that, read through chapters 12 through to 19. Uh, last week, uh, chapters uh, 18 and 19, we heard of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the bit we didn't read, though, was the very first bit of chapter 18, where, where God and, or, or God's messenger, anyway, three people, uh, one of whom speaks as God, comes there to, to Abraham, and they share a meal, uh, and he says, Sarah, your wife will have a son, your son Abraham, within a year, and Sarah's hiding out in the tent, um, and she laughs about it. Sometime between then and here, so this is, this is within that year, sometime then we find that they move south to the Negev, and they live for a while between Kadesh and Shur, and then moved on to Gerar. Uh, so, uh, the New Living Translation there, uh, they, they moved to Kadesh and Shur, and they, they wandered in the region of Gerar. This, this wasn't... Gerar uh, 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 is about 50 kilometers away from Hebron, where he was previously. It's probably a station for his flocks and his herds. Remember, Abraham's a wealthy man. He, he seems to come out of everything smelling like roses. Well, smelling like roses that have been well manured. Um, Abimelech is the king of Gerar. Abimelech is probably a title because we, we see the same guy uh, a few, well, we see the same name a few times, including once in the Psalms. Uh, he's the king of Gerar. Abraham is just a resident alien living in this land that God has promised him. It's, it's the land that God has said, Abraham, this will be your land. 
But at the moment, Abraham is living there as a resident alien, as a 457 visa. If you've got your Bibles, just quickly flick over with me to uh, 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 4, says this. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor that God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he's the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the faith that was planned for them. But you're not like that, for you are a chosen people. You're a royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you show others the goodness of God. You can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Now, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. And then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And then if you flick with your fingers quickly across to to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole world earth. 1 Peter 2 speaks of uh, God building uh, us into the temple of God uh, and Jesus being the living cornerstone and that through Jesus we, we are mediators for the people in the world around us. Uh, we saw there in verse 10 of, of Second Peter, uh, sorry, of uh, 1 Peter, how, how God showed us mercy, how he took us from when we were nothing and made us into his own people, which, which is exactly what he did to Abraham. He took this, this virtually nothing. Now, he wasn't anyone amazingly special. And he made him into this one who would bless through him the whole world. And then in verse 11, Peter says about us that we are temporary residents and foreigners. And that we should keep away from the worldly desires that wage against our very souls. So that we will live properly among our neighbors and, and, and so that when God judges the world, they will honor God. And I bring this up because we and Abraham, I believe, have a very similar task and a very similar situation. Abraham at this stage is in the land of the promise. God has said, this land will be yours. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. And yet he's there as a temporary resident and foreigner. At this point, he is not owning the land in in that sense. It is his to come. It it is promised to be his. Uh, For us Christians, Jesus has said, those who trust in me, they will inherit 
the earth, they will inherit everything. And yet last time I checked, I don't own everything. I don't think many of you either own everything. I don't even own all my house. The bank owns most of that. But we have the same job as Abraham right now. We are to live as temporary residents and foreigners. We live in a world that does not yet acknowledge what God has promised. And until Jesus comes, until God's promise is fulfilled for us, uh, until it was fulfilled for Abraham, even afterwards, we are called to be God's priests and God's prophets. We are called to, to represent God, to introduce God to others, to take them in prayer to God, to speak for God to them, to, to, to look at them, and, and when they see us, they will go, wow, yes, actually, when God acts, God's incredible. We tend to do, in my experience, a good, as good a job of it as Abraham does. Uh, which is to say sometimes fantastic and sometimes rotten. You see, sometimes we have a penchant to make the same mistakes over and over again. Real life happens and we assume that this world is more real than the promise of God. This is the second time, as we've said, where Abraham goes about and says to a king, she's my sister. Some people, if, if you read the commentary, some of them say, oh, well, obviously, Genesis chapter 12, where this happened the first time, is identical to Genesis chapter 20, because who would be stupid enough to make that same mistake twice? That must be a very different kind of person, the commentator, to, to me or you. I don't know, I can make the same mistake more than twice. And fear can make us do very stupid things, can't it? And as verse 13 says to us, this wasn't just a one-off or a two-off mistake. This was a policy, a, a, a premeditated tactic to preserve oneself. And, and what's even more disturbing is that in Genesis chapter 26, we read of Abraham's son Isaac doing exactly the same thing. So at some point, Isaac's not even born yet, at some point, Abraham's given him the idea. Isn't that disturbing? How does that come up in conversation with your son? Hey, son, I just want to tell you, if you ever get stuck and you're afraid for your life, just say your wife's your sister. Or did Abraham do it again? I don't know. That's just weird. There are some big differences between this incident in Genesis chapter 20 and the first one, the one in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, the most important difference, I think, is that at this point, it seems possible that Sarah is no longer barren. Remember, all through this time, it's been more than 20 years, Sarah has been unable to have children. They had that whole horrible incident with, with Hagar uh, a, a few chapters back. Uh, we've been told by the angel that within the year, she will have a son. Well, this, this time next year, you will have a son. She's not obviously pregnant at this point because you know, the whole lie of she's not my wife would be questioned if she was, you know, with a baby bump. 
Uh, but Isaac is due to arrive well within the year. It's less than a year until Isaac is due to arrive. And at stake in this particular case is the question of whether Isaac is Abraham's son. And at stake is whether God actually keeps his word or not. God foiled Abraham's plan in Egypt, had them kicked out of the country, but Abraham goes back to it again. And Abraham must have known that it was wrong, but he made the choice anyway. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we never made the same mistake twice? Wouldn't that be amazing? I can see Eric, who's been a Christian for many, many years now, laughing and saying that would be incredible. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we never chose to sin in the same way twice? But as Peter said in that passage we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, our sinful desires within us wage war against our very souls. And so often we set up patterns of thinking and behaving and habits that we fall back on when things get tough. We compromise because, you know, it, 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 I have to protect myself. And I'm not, I'm not sure that God's up to the task. God wants better for us, but God wants us to, God wants better for us. He wants us to, to live a life of integrity, to, to walk before Him and be blameless, is what He said to Abraham at the start of Genesis uh, chapter 18 or chapter 17. But you know what I really appreciate is that God's grace has no upper limits. Remember that time when Peter goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, just checking up on this quickly, uh, my brother, seven times forgive him? And Jesus says, Peter, 70 times seven, mate. And he tells the story about how incredibly gracious God is forgiving us. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says um, that there are countless second chances with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. God's grace cannot be outdone. Isn't that incredible? It doesn't mean we should set out to make the same mistakes. And Paul, if you read Romans chapter 6, says exactly that. He says, so what shall we do? Shall we, shall we, uh, uh, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And then verse 11 of chapter 6 of Romans. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Uh, in other words, just because God's grace increases doesn't mean we go, ah, oh, that's okay, I'll, I'll just do whatever I think I should do to keep myself safe. Compromise is okay, guys, because God's grace is bigger. Yes, go out and compromise, amen. Paul says, rubbish. God's grace is bigger, but don't go out and say, I'm going to compromise because God will forgive me anyway. He says, God will forgive you if you compromise, but don't do it on purpose. If you know the right thing to do, do it because your sinful desires wage war against your soul. Ooh, that went high. God's grace has no upper limit, but that doesn't mean we should set out to make the same mistakes. I don't even know if Abraham was thinking it through clearly at this point. Sometimes we don't. The king Abimelech sends for Sarah. 
And before anything untoward happens, that very night God confronts him in a dream and, and says, Oi, mate, woo, you're a dead man. And Abimelech turns to God in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 20, and he says, God, will you destroy an innocent nation? And the wording there is the same as, will you destroy a righteous people? Righteous and innocent, the same words. And you might remember that question because we heard it last week. God was speaking to Abraham about what he was going to do and, and how he was going to destroy the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other cities and villages. And, uh, and, and Abraham said to God, God, will you destroy the righteous among uh, along with the wicked? Will you destroy the innocent along with the guilty, along with the wicked? And God gives Abimelech the same answer that he gave to Abraham. He says, no, I'm not, I know you're innocent. I'm not going to destroy the innocent. Abimelech says to God, God, I acted in complete innocence. Didn't they both say, we're brother and sister? It's just, that's weird. And chapter 17, verse 1. First thing God says to Abraham there in that chapter is, Abraham, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. And the word blameless is the word innocent. In other words, what we have here, <laughs> we have this pagan king, Abimelech, blameless, righteous, and God's chosen representative, Abraham, blameful and completely not innocent. If it wasn't for God's intervention, Abimelech would have committed a terrible crime. And, and God says to him explicitly, Abimelech, I kept you from sinning against me. And, and, and that's interesting because the crime wouldn't have been against Abraham and the crime wouldn't have been against Sarah. Well, it would have been, but, but ultimately it was against God. Because Abimelech would have been acting against God's plans and purposes for Abraham and Sarah, but he would also have been acting against God's design for, for marriage and relationship. And, and, and like any other sin, adultery is just thumbing of the nose at God and saying, God, I don't care about you. I'm going to do it my way. And God says to Abimelech, I did not let you touch her. Now, Abimelech probably had no idea that this was God doing it. Now, we, we see at the end of the chapter that God had made it so that uh, there could be no kids in Abimelech's household. Uh, the woman and probably Abimelech himself uh, had been affected by God. Now, the interesting thing is that the very night that Sarah arrives in the palace, God confronts him. But God has been working in the scenes, behind the scenes, long before this. Isn't that incredible? I have arranged things so that you could do nothing untoward, Abimelech. God is just and he will always do the right thing, but it is so good that he is also merciful and he gives Abimelech a chance to do the right thing. God is also merciful in that sometimes he stands against us in our compromising and our scheming. When Abimelech wakes up, uh, verses 8 to 13, he speaks to his servants, and they are terrified. They are terrified. 
God has spoken. God is real. This explains everything. And God has promised justice. And woe betide us if we do not do the right thing now. And, and I think Abimelech, he goes to great exper- personal expense to do the right thing for fear of God. Abraham, on the other hand, this man of God, chosen by God, the one who has seen God and spoken with God, Abraham's controlled by a very different kind of fear. He, he knows that God is powerful, mighty, righteous, merciful, forgiving. He knows that God is the one who's given him, given him incredible promises. He knows that God has said to him, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child, and this child will be the heir of my promises. He knows all of these things, but in the end... In the there and the then, God seemed less real and the danger seemed more real. And so Abraham goes, well, I'm going to have to do what I have to do. Abimelech, understandably, is, is a little bit ticked off at Abraham. I, I think I would be ticked off as well. But then Abraham takes the high moral ground. You see what he does in verse 11? He says, oh, I thought to myself, this is a godless place. They will want my wife and they will kill me to get her. Do you see this? Hey, Abimelech, don't you get angry at me. You're a pagan scum. I had to be wicked. Of course, we would never, ever do anything like that or say anything like that. Defending the indefensible. Sounds a little bit like us, doesn't it? You know, the irony is that just last week we heard of Abraham praying for the righteous, the innocent in the cities of the plain. But when it comes to the people of Gerar, he just writes them all off. Yet they're all a godless lot. How easy it is for our ethics and our approach to life to change depending on how much it affects me. You know, it's one thing for something bad, and, and this, is, this is something that I know in my own life, it's one thing for something bad to happen to, to someone else. But when it happens to me, then you will do anything and everything, won't we? This is what Abraham says. Oh, lots in the cities of the plain. God, protect the innocent. He doesn't explicitly mention lot, but I wonder if that's it. And, and I'm here and they're there, so yeah, God, protect the innocent. But when he's in danger, he says, God, I don't care about them. I've got to save my own skin. And then even worse, in verse 13, it's possible that Abraham shifts the blame onto God. I read one of my commentaries said, uh, verse 13 reads, when God called me to leave my father's home, one of my commentaries said, you, you can actually translate this more literally, when the gods made me wonder away from my home. When the gods caused me to wonder. And if that's the case, he takes his incredible personal relationship with the one true God and he reduces it to the gods made me wonder. And, and, and even if he talks about God, it's almost as if he says, God made me wonder. As in, it's not a good thing that God made me leave. It's, it's not that God has given me any benefits, just He's kicked me out of my house and home and now I have to fend for myself. 
Almost I have to protect myself from you since God has driven me away from my place of safety. And after all that Abraham had experienced of God, he still didn't trust that God loved him. In a slightly different context, 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love drives out fear. Abraham didn't realize that God actually loved him. Didn't trust that. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of all the evidences that God has given through time and our, our journey with Him that He loves us, which is what Abraham did. And the challenge for us is to trust that God is for us based on our past experiences of God, and, and not just our past experiences, but the experiences of people throughout history. And so we have to ask, do we ever compromise like Abraham? Do we ever say, God, I'm going to have to sort this out because I'm not sure you can? We do, don't we? Assuming that we have to look out for ourselves first. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. But hold on because I need to go to work. So I'll finish the prayer later because I have to make sure that I provide for myself, God. Going to work is a good thing. And that's the way God often provides for our daily meals. But, but God, I'm going to have to do whatever it takes just to provide for, for my needs. Because I'm not sure you're up to the task. Or God, I'm going to have to work really hard to be a really good person because I'm not, uh, uh, wonderful Jesus died, but I'm not quite sure that his death was enough for my sins. And you speak about grace, God, but, but I have to be better before grace will apply. We can compromise like that. God, if the church is declining and, and if we don't change some of our opinions on things just a little bit, the church will die out. And so we're going we're gonna to just modify things slightly, God, because you know what? We need the church to grow. Yes? These are all ways that we can compromise. And we've got... Some of these might resonate with you. Some of them resonate with me. And we've all got other ways that we know that we can compromise. God doesn't directly confront Abraham and Sarah. He does it indirectly through Abimelech. <laughs> and I bet Abimelech was not a gentle, what have you done, what crime have I committed against you? It was a, what have you done? But Abimelech also makes amends for his sins because he had sinned. He, he gave Abraham livestock and slaves and he let them stay in his territory and he gave Abraham, and I love this, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, a thousand shekels. And this is about 11 kilograms of silver. This is more, if you're a daily, uh, like a common worker, this is more than you would earn in your life. And he gives us, and, and I think he's trying to make a clear statement uh, that, that, that he hadn't taken advantage of Sarah. He's trying to clear her reputation, saying, I made a mistake. Uh, I haven't touched her. She is innocent. She is, she is still pure here. Um, I don't think the lesson to be taken from this, 
that Abraham and Sarah do this horrible thing and then they get paid for it. I don't think the lesson is go out and sin because you shall prosper. Please don't go out and sin. Remember Romans chapter 6. God's grace increases, but don't set out to test God's grace. Um, The point is not that that they benefit because they do wrong. But, But I think we can also say that God can turn circumstances for the good of those who love him. Um, in particular in this case, I think the reason God has Abimelech bless Abraham and Sarah is less to do with them and more to do with God. You see, by getting Abimelech to publicly clear Sarah, to publicly make amends, God is clearing the mess of their sin. God is making it clear that when Isaac is born, he is the son of Abraham, not Abimelech. It wasn't a, a subtle, you know, have a bit of cash and don't let anyone know about the mistake I made. It was a, everyone, let it be known, I've made a mistake, but God intervened before anything happened. Everyone knew that when Isaac comes, it is not Isaac, uh, sorry, it is not Sarah and Abimelech's son. Everyone knows that this son is a, is a result of God's promise And everyone knows that there is grace involved because Abimelech could have got really angry and Abimelech could have... Of course, he would have had to face God there because God made it pretty clear that Abraham is someone special to him. But you know, there's just one other thing I want to mention before we finish and I realize our time is up. Why does God... Only heal Abimelech and Abimelech's household when Abraham prays. If I'm right and they've been suffering with whatever infirmity God has placed upon them for a while before even Sarah's taken in, why does God wait for Abraham to pray? God knows that Abimelech has acted in complete innocence, that the nation is, is, is innocent here. They're blameless before God in this matter. Why doesn't God just say, you know what, Abimelech, you're right. You're going to do the right thing, so you know what, I'm healing you all. Woo! No, God says, Abimelech, chapter 20, verse 7, go to Abraham, he is my prophet, and he will pray for you, and he will heal you. You will live, verse 7. If you don't return it to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. Abraham is God's prophet, spokesperson, his mediator. And in fact, this is the first time that someone is ever called a prophet in the Bible. Abraham was the one who would mediate between Abimelech and God. And I think this is a hint of the blessing that would come through Abraham to the world where where the one true mediator, Jesus, Son of God, humanly speaking, born through the line of Abraham, comes and intercedes for us to the Father. He stands there and he says, God, would would you accept Nicholas because of what I've done? Would you accept John because of what I've done? Arnold's messed up again, God, but I died for him. Would you accept him? Reg, Debbie, 
Phil, insert your name here. By using Abraham as a prophet, God is, is showing his authority through Abraham. But he's also showing that Abraham, sinner and spineless as he is, is also God's chosen servant. And I think like Abraham, if we put our trust in God, in Jesus, we are his ambassadors to the world. That passage we read in Peter speaks of us as being priests to the world. This is the same sort of idea. Uh, uh, Genesis here speaks of Abraham being a, a prophet to the world. People who, who know what God has shown of himself, who, who speak to God on behalf of others, who, who speak to others on behalf of God. And you might sit here and go, well, Nick, that's wonderful, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a priest or a prophet. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough to represent God to those around me. And I agree, you're not. Neither am I. Look at Abraham. Neither is Abraham. We aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but God in His grace still chooses to use us. He's given us incredible promises. He said that we will be with Him forever and ever in a perfect world. And God sometimes has to call us back to Himself when we lose sight of that, but, but He doesn't let go of us and He doesn't give up on us and He still says, I want you to represent me. That, I think, is the definition of amazing grace. You know, God's plans cannot be thwarted. Sometimes we go into this mode of self-preservation and compromise. God will bring His kingdom to pass. God's plans will come true. Sometimes because God loves us, He's going to bring in Abimelech who's going to publicly make it known that we made a mistake. If we forget that, everyone would have known that Abraham and Sarah had made a mistake as well. God's plans will come true. We might as well save ourselves the pain and the embarrassment and trust God now. As Nadine reminded us, in the good times, trust God, and when life is difficult, when everything inside of us says compromise, when the sinful desires within us that wage war against our very souls say, you know what, just... just Abraham's story here is one where he said, I'm not going to trust God. He's not an example to us in this. The example is that God's grace will reach us even then, but my friends, let's, let's not go there. Let's choose to trust God because He does love us and His plans for us will not be thwarted Amen.